right. <clears throat> Let us begin. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts. Again, as we always should. This may sound repetitious, but it is something that we need to really get into the habit of asking for the Lord's help when we pray. That is the job of the Holy Spirit, is to help it make it clear to us as to what we're saying. Today I'd like to get into talking about who St. Paul is. Now, we've heard a number of, of things, and I'm sure you've all read a lot of, about it, but there's a number of things that I'd like to point out <clears throat> about who this man really is and the importance that he has to us, but to the entire church uh, in the first century. And that is why I wrote this rather long biography here, but it's rather short compared to, uh, if you want to read some books on St. Paul, I have plenty. Um, but I did try to condense some of this so that we can at least get the essence and then I want to uh, elaborate a little bit on what is even written here. So if you'll bear with me, uh, just a moment. So if you'll all turn to this handout here. Trying to know St. Paul and understand him is like trying to understand a cloud formation. A cloud formation. It seems to be constantly changing and yet remains a cloud formation. This important person in the early church ran the gamut of lives from strict Pharisee to a silent martyr to a venerated saint. And in this last place of his life that propels, it, it is the last uh, of this life that propels us to attempt some understanding of the whole person. The man we call Paul was born in a strict Jewish family in a town of Tarsus in the province of Cilicia, which now is in the southern part of the country of Turkey. That is important in the fact that this is a very Hellenized uh, community. These people are not really bound uh, to the Jewish Torah as much as the Jews were in Jerusalem. Remember, I've said many times, Jerusalem was the center of Judaism, and as you went further away from Jerusalem, the people were a little more relaxed as it went further out. Because this was an acknowledged part of the Roman Empire at that period of time, he was considered a Roman citizen, which is also important to certain parts of his later life. He was apparently well-educated because he tells us that at an early age, he was sent to Jerusalem to study under the tutelage of Gamaliel, a Jewish Pharisee. Remember, uh, this is the same man 
that when Christ was before the Sanhedrin, after he was captured, you know, on what we call Good Friday, and went before all of these people uh, in the Sanhedrin, and he was the one that said, be careful what you do to this guy, because if he is truly from God, you'll pay the penalty. And of course, they ignored him at that time. But this man is very important in the life of Paul, and at least he tried to moderate the attempts of the Pharisees at the time of Christ. This education took the form of an almost radical devotion to the Mosaic Law, uh, where Paul, then called Saul, his given name, requested permission in the form of letters to, to capture people in Damascus who were obeying or observing the new Christian way and return them to Jerusalem for punishment. So, you know, therefore, you see, he had to be more than 30 years old, and he had to be well-educated and to have some uh, degree of authority. So, this kind of, with this kind of attitude, you could wonder how and why uh, he, Saul of, Parsons, Saul of Tarsus, became the saint we know of as St. Paul. St. Luke tells us in chapter 9 of Acts that it was while Paul was on his way to Damascus to carry out this request to capture people of the Christian way and return them to Jerusalem for punishment, when he was suddenly enveloped in a very uh, bright light, a light so strong that he fell to the ground. It was because give you a little side incident. I once was telling this to some people and I said he fell off of his horse. And this woman says, now how do you know he fell off of his horse? <laughs> I said, what difference does it make? That's not an important issue. Uh, it was because the suddenness and brightness of this event that caused Paul to fall to the ground, whether it was from the horse or whatever. <clears throat> then a voice was heard saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul answered the voice with, who are you, sir? And the voice answered, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, get up and go into the city where you will be told what to do. Let's stop there for a minute. Paul was not actually persecuting Jesus, was he? This is the first point or first place in the Bible that equates the church with Christ himself. And it was through Jesus' own words that we can say that the church is an extension of Christ. And that is, while Paul is persecuting the church, that means he is persecuting Christ. Does that make sense? You get the connection? So that's why this statement means more than kind of just what the word said. 
Why are you persecuting me? Now get up and go into the city, etc., etc. Okay. The remainder of this story is told in Acts chapter 9 and includes Paul's temporary blindness, the directions of where to go and finding them, just as he was told, including the vision that Ananias, Paul's host for three days, who witnesses to Paul and later baptizes him. Although dramatic and unprecedented, this scene is not much different from the change that Peter went through that we had talked about a couple of weeks ago after the first Pentecost and then again after the coming of the Holy Spirit. Remember the visions of the sheets containing many animals and birds and the visit of Cornelius. Remember, this was the story where Peter is told, you know, to slaughter and eat all of these kinds of vegetables and and uh, animals, etc. And he says, oh, no, I wouldn't do such a thing. And the voice tells him, what God has made, you are not to call profane. So there's a similarity there. Then in verse 9, uh, chapter 9, verse 20 of Acts, we read, After a few days, Paul began at once to proclaim Jesus as the Son of God. This is possible, we know, because anything is possible with God. But, 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 big but, Paul seems to dispute the suddenness of this change because as it reads in the Acts of the Apostles, you would think that after his three days of blindness and so forth, that he gets up and immediately starts proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord and so forth and so on. Well, that's possible, but not likely. When you stop to think about all of the books and, uh, or rather, you know, the letters that Paul wrote, where did he get all that information? Where did he really become educated in a theological way? And I feel that this is the answer here. Um, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 17, Paul says he did not seek out the apostles or anyone else. Instead, quote, I went to Arabia and then returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to confer with Peter. We have no idea how long Paul remained in Arabia, nowhere exactly in Arabia, which is a very large area, or what he did uh, in this time period. However, we do know... <clears throat> something of great importance because in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, Paul tells of a series of revelations where he was, quote, caught up into paradise and heard ineffable things which no one may utter, unquote. From this statement, we are led to believe that while Paul in Arabia Paul had a number of uh, revelations that infused him with 
the knowledge and understanding of the teachings of Jesus Christ, which comes to us in the theology of his letters, Paul's letters. Without the intervention of the Holy Spirit in this way, it is doubtful that Paul's teachings could have had the depth that they contain. Do you understand that? In other words, while Paul is in Arabia, or at least that's the way I interpret this, he has these revelations wherein the Holy Spirit puts into his mind and heart all of the theology that the early church was uh, privileged to receive through Paul directly from the Holy Spirit. Right? Because nobody could go from one extreme to the other without God's intervention. And that is the point I'm trying to make here. Without the intervention of the Holy Spirit in this particular way, that is the revelations, it is doubtful that Paul's teachings could have the depth that they contain. At the time of his dramatic conversion, Paul was probably in his late 30s or early 40s. We believe that he was never married and therefore able to undertake a series of journeys uh, to promote his newfound vocation or evangelization to anyone who would listen, and listen they did. His journeys are well documented by Luke in Acts, um, well, throughout Acts, you might say, uh, because from chapter 16 on of Acts, there is uh, almost uh, a, a travelogue description of Paul's journeys. And that is why I gave you the uh, maps that you have attached to your handout there, because it is, I think, easier to look at the maps than it is to read uh, the directions and so forth and so on that's in the rest of the Acts of the Apostles. We won't go over these right now because uh, it's not really that important to us at this moment here. Okay. In Acts, Luke has detailed three missionary journeys. Wait, I want to stop for a minute. One thing I didn't uh, put in here, perhaps I should, but I don't think it was that important, was what was Paul's profession? Anyone know? All right, tent maker, yes. But, again, another. Tents were very important in those days for travelers for as a mode of uh, housing and so forth and so on. But also, the term tent was often used uh, to imply a uh, chapel or a temple. Um, Paul was accused at times uh, later on. Uh, and the term temple, remember the temple was a tent 
for over 500, well, well over 500 years from the time of Moses until the time <coughs> of uh, King Solomon, when Solomon built the big temple, the magnificent temple in uh, Jerusalem. So the tabernacle uh, that was established originally by Moses back around uh, 1500 B.C., uh, was off, was the only uh, covering or te- uh, you know covering for the uh, holy of holies uh, and which contained the ark of the covenant and so forth a few other things so tent was often associated with tabernacle or temple so you got to be a wee bit careful when you hear that uh, in the New Testament. Okay. I'm going to re- <coughs> re- restate this second paragraph here. In Acts, Luke has detailed here three missionary journeys, as he calls them in various parts of Asia and Europe, as detailed in the maps accompanied herein. It is not necessary for us to review these locations uh, of his journeys, but it's important to read and understand the letters that were written back to some of these same locations with the intentions of reinforcing the faith of those same people. It is also important for us to know that these same letters were the beginning source of the theology of the church. Without these letters, we wouldn't have the theology that came to us from the Holy Spirit through Paul to the church. The 13 letters attributed to Paul were written over a period of approximately 20 years or less, and they covered a wide range of subjects. It is important for us to understand that the content of these same letters was the evidence used by the Jerusalem temple rulers to indict Paul for blasphemy because they claimed Paul was discrediting the Mosaic law. In other words, they used Paul's own words uh, to accuse him. What they refused to see was Paul's message of the fulfillment of the Mosaic law by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is this same message that should cause us as Christians to believe in Christ as the Savior of all mankind. Paul's letters are listed here in the order usually found in most Bibles. This order is not in the order of their date of writing or dissemination. Rather, they are placed in the Bible in the order of length or number of words, which was common in the 4th century in which the Bible was assembled. Can you imagine writing something like that today? A series of history that took a long period of time, and yet you couldn't tell what the date was for any of these things because they went back and forth and overlapped and so forth. Well, the statement here is 
The order of the writings of the prophets of the Old Testament is arranged in the same way for the same reason. The date of writing is unknown. And so what order do you put something like that in when you're publishing it all in one book? So they decided that it would be done in the order of the length or the size of the verbiage. And so by counting words or length of pages or whatever, that's the order in which they are in in uh, the Bible. Okay. The letters of St. Paul are the Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Okay. The last three or four were written in Rome while Paul was in prison. Okay. Sometime after the third journey, Paul was compelled to return to Jerusalem with money gifts to the believers who remained there. There was a great deal of persecution at that time of those people who accepted the Christian way to the point where shopkeepers would not sell things to them. And housing was very difficult. A number of things uh, were not given or allowed to go to the uh, Christians uh, because it was, of course, um, ruled by Rome and by the Sanhedrin. This was up until the point of the destruction of the temple. He was arrested there uh, by members of the Sanhedrin and imprisoned. This is in Jerusalem. Okay. He was then sent to Caesarea uh, because the center of Roman control over Jerusalem was moved to Caesarea. Okay. Uh, and from there to Rome where he was held for two years in the form of house arrest and finally executed about the year 67 AD. Now, as legend and tradition goes, not history, but legend and tradition, Paul was taken outside the walls of Rome to be executed by beheading. Taking outside was common. Remember, Christ was moved to Calvary uh, outside of Jerusalem. That was a common thing. But what was not in common was when this happened, his head bounced three times down a small hill. At the point of a spot of each bounce, a small fountain of water sprang up, and these fountains are still running today on the grounds of the church that is known in Rome as the Cathedral of St. Paul outside the walls. I've been there. I've seen the fountains. Yeah. That is uh, quite a story. If I remember correctly, Paul was beheaded because he was a Roman and he couldn't be crucified. No. 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 Paul was beheaded because uh, he was desecrating uh, or blaspheming the Mosaic law and teaching others to do the same. 
Now, that was a misinterpretation of what he was doing, but that was by the Jewish people manipulating the Romans to do this. Jewish people, yes, beheading was very common. Uh, say, uh, John the Baptist, remember, was beheaded by Herod earlier. Yeah. No, beheading was very common in those days, both in Jerusalem. But you see, to technically, the Jewish people had no right to murder or, or behead or execute anybody. They had to get the Romans to do it. And in this case, they manipulated the Romans uh, to do it. Because the Romans had really no... Um, reason to execute Paul in Rome. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes, Mike? I, and I don't I don't mean to discredit what you said, but um, yes, California is kind of a joke anyways. You know. uh, okay. Uh, any other questions? Okay. Uh, now, I've, I've condensed this, obviously, uh, considerably. So there's a great deal more about St. Paul. And we'll get into that as we go along uh, for the next few weeks. We'll be covering his letters almost exclusively and bringing in, you know, other details as well. But it's important that we understand and appreciate what Paul did for the early church. Now, again, though, we must not uh, put Paul ahead of St. Peter. By the way, the feast days of Peter and Paul are the same day which means that the church has put them on the same level. Peter, for his guidance of the church as head of, uh, head of the apostles, you might say, and then head of the church, and Paul as the first and major theologian of the church, the first theologian of the church. And like I've said here in this little write-up, if it weren't for Paul's letters, the theology that we uh, got from them or that is contained in those letters uh, would not have uh, been possible. However, of course, the Holy Spirit could have done it another way. That's true. But what I'm saying is that this is the way it came to us through Paul and the revelations that uh, he had. Okay, I'd like to go to uh, one of the letters of Paul that I think is very important for a number of reasons, and we'll get into that as we go along. So I hope that you, how many have actually read this letter to the Galatians? Did you have a hard time understanding it? Okay, yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's a beautiful letter, and it covers 
some of the subject matter of what we talked about last week and the week before. The uh, first of the major uh, councils of the church. And uh, Paul's letter refers to that uh, several times. But I'm going to re read this. I'm not the greatest reader, as you probably already know, because I've read it so many times that my mind starts jumping ahead. But um, we'll do the best we can. Okay. It starts out with a very flowery greeting, which is common in the letters of that time period. Uh, not only Paul, but several other people writing letters um, starts out with a very uh, flowery and overly worded greeting. Paul, an apostle not from human beings nor through a human being, but through Jesus Christ, he's talking about the apostleship, uh, is not from uh, any human being, but from Christ himself. Um, and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, meaning not the dead uh, of life, but from a life of spiritual death. Important. And all the brothers who are with me in the churches of Galatia, grace and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might rescue us from the present evil age in accord with the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. In other words, in these kinds of letters, you have somebody who explains who they are. Remember, letters were not real common in those days. So if you got a letter, it was a big occasion, and the letter would generally contain a far more information than you would ever expect today. You know, dear John or dear Mary or dear Pete or whatever is as far as we go today, and we get right into it. Well, they didn't because they explained who it was coming from and who it was going to and why. Right in the very first part. Yeah. Yes. Yes, that's the point. And that's a major issue uh, uh, of the whole next section. Okay. <clears throat> Going on. I am amazed that you, the Galatians, uh, and furthermore, let's explain, in this letter here, it is going to a several different people, several different communities within the province of Galatia, right, which is now in the current uh, country of Turkey. I am amazed that you are so quickly forsaken. You so are quickly forsaken, the one who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Not that there is another, 
but there are some who are disturbing you and wish to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel other than the one that we have preached to you, uh, let that one be accursed. Remember, he is talking about the good message, the good news. You have to remember that the word gospel at that particular time did not exist in the same way we use it today. The word gospel came as an interpretation uh, several centuries later. But what they called it was the good news. The good news that the Messiah has finally come and has fulfilled all of the promises that the prophets of the Old Testament has given these people. That's what the good news is all about. And it would all, it would really make better sense if they would use that word for a while in some of these early letters. Okay. As we have said before, and now I say again, if anyone preaches to you a gospel or a good news other than the one that you receive, let them be accursed because there is no other one. I am now occurring uh, favor with human beings. In other words, he's trying to smooch them. Um, uh, or am I seeking to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a slave of Christ. Now, this is the point that you were making here. He's defending his own authority here. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel preached to me is not of human origin. The gospel preached to Paul was not of human origin. As we talked about a little earlier, it came from these revelations. For I did not receive it from a human being, nor was I taught it, but it came through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you heard of my former way of life in Judaism, and now and how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it, and progressed in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries of my race, since I was even more a zealot for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who from my mother's womb had set me apart and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might proclaim him to the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult flesh and blood, nor did I go to Jerusalem there uh, uh, to those who were apostles before me. Rather, I went to Arabia and then return to Damascus. Does that fit in now with what we were talking about? So even though the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 9, appears that he got up from his horse or whatever and immediately started preaching, well, that is not, not the case. Okay. Then, three years later, 
I went up to Jerusalem to confer with Cephas, that is Peter, and remained with him for 15 days. But I did not see any other apostles, only James, the brother of the Lord, as to whom I am writing to you, behold, before God, I am not lying. And then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was known personally to the churches of Judah that are in Christ. They only kept hearing that the one who once was persecuting us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And so they glorified God because of me. In other words, they realized that Paul was really a convert and not just trying to uh, pretend so he could get uh, close to them. Now, the next section is kind of referring to that Council of Jerusalem that we had talked about a couple of weeks ago. <clears throat> then, after 14 years, I went again to Jerusalem and Barnabas taking Titus along. This is after his uh, first and perhaps it was even after the second of his journeys. I went up in accord with a revelation, another revelation here, and I presented to them uh, the gospel or the good news that I preached to the Gentiles. In other words, he went up and talked to Peter and told him what he was doing and what he was preaching. But privately, uh, let's see, I better back up. I went in accord with a revelation and I presented to them, that is Paul, uh, uh, Peter rather, the gospel that I preach to Gentiles, but privately to those of repute, so that I might not be running or have run in vain. Moreover, not even Titus, who was with me, although he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised, but because of the false brothers, uh, because of the false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy on our freedom, all right, that we have in Christ Jesus, that they might enslave us. To them he did not submit, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might remain intact for you. In other words, while he was talking to Peter, some spies from Judaism uh, kind of came in to see what was going on. Okay. You have to remember, this was written over 2,000 years ago and translated verbally, uh, word for word. And, of course, one of the things in Paul's writings is that some of the sentences can go on for a whole paragraph. And you have to stop and kind of go backtrack and do remember the diagrams and in our elementary English classes where we had to do the predicate and the verb and the noun and all of that, well, you almost have to do that to some of Paul's letters to get the meaning. Right. 
or you have to kind of reverse certain statements. But uh, once you get used to that, it, it helps out. Okay. But from those who were reputed to be important, uh, what was... Um, excuse me. What they once were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. That's a very important statement. God shows no partiality between male, female, and this Paul goes on and elaborates on that quite a bit in one of his other letters. One, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel, that is the good news, to be the, to the uncircumcised, just as Peter to the circumcised. For the one who worked in Peter for an apostolate to be to the circumcised worked also in me for the Gentiles. In other words, the Holy Spirit is behind each of them for a specific reason, specific purpose and destination. And when they recognized the grace bestowed upon me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars of the church, gave me and Barnas their right hands in partnership so that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only we were to be mindful of the poor, which is the very thing I was eager to do. In other words, in this particular meeting, they decided that Peter was having more success in preaching to the Jewish converts and Paul was having greater success in preaching to the uh, Gentile or pagans of all other kinds of religion and bringing them into the fold of Christianity. Obviously, this was one of the reasons why God chose Paul, because he was born outside of Israel, and though a very prominent Jew, he was converted, and therefore he knows both sides of the fence. But his efforts were far more effective towards preaching to the converted uh, Gentiles than he was in trying to preach to the Jews. Uh, here's another little problem here. Peter's inconsistency at Antioch. And when Cephas, that is Peter, uh, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he clearly was wrong. For only some people came from, until some people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, this is a story that is a little confusing here. But remember, Peter was supposed to go to the Jewish people. But that didn't exclude him from preaching also to 
Gentiles when they started to intermingle in their meetings. Okay, And so what happens here is that Peter is now eating uh, what was formerly forbidden foods and doing things that were formerly forbidden uh, by Jewish law. And now all of a sudden, he's kind of drawing back and trying to be straight with some of the Jews by uh, following the Jewish law a little bit better than he was earlier. And Paul is sort of questioning why he's doing that. Not only questioning, really criticizing rather thoroughly that he shouldn't be doing that. In other words, he's accusing, Paul is accusing Peter of being wishy-washy. Okay? But later on, the reverse happens. Yes? Did they not get along? They did not get along. That's what I thought. That's putting it mildly, but yes. (laughs) They did not get along. But there again, it shows in a way that God shows no partiality. If he wants to use uh, a real oddball and a straight-laced person, uh, he can use both of them for his purpose, and it will work out. Uh, I think we should learn a lesson from that, too. It doesn't take a very special person in the eyes of people to serve God. We can all do that. We are all given certain talents, and we should be using those in a way to help others come to see Christ in the same way that we do. Uh, That doesn't necessarily mean we have to do some of the things that Peter and Paul did, but we all have opportunities at times to reflect our faith and our religion. And quite often, most people don't do that. They hide themselves uh, because they say, well, that's either my personal uh, business and no one else's, or they're afraid to expose their faith. And we shouldn't do that. Well, don't a lot of different priests are about the same way? Uh, don't go there, Madge. <laughs> yes, yes, in many ways. Yeah. Okay, Let, let's go on. Uh, the story uh, of Paul and, and taking Peter to task is is really not that important. Uh, let's go on to the chapter, I mean, verse 15. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles, yeah, who know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. This is something that uh, was mentioned earlier. Perhaps I should go back to say, uh, yeah, let, let me go back a little to, to uh, verse 12. 
For until some people came from James, Paul, or rather Peter, used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, that is, other people came in, um, he began to draw back and separate himself because he was afraid of the circumcised, that is, other Jews. And so he tried to get back in the good graces of those people. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw, that is, when Paul saw that they were not on the right road in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of all, if you, though a Jew, are living like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? No. Well, a lot, a lot of people will think that. You know, well, there isn't, it isn't in scripture. You know, Jesus says, uh, if you say no, you mean no, and, and you should live by it. Or if you mean yes, then live by it. Well, sorry. <laughs> All right, let's go on. We who are Jews by nature, and not sinners from among the Gentiles, because remember, Jews classified all Gentiles, that is, anyone who wasn't a Jew, as a great sinner. It was just automatically. Who know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. This whole section now is on the difference between a religion or a a faith based on observance of laws all the way down into the last detail versus a faith based solely on the belief in the life, death, and resurrection and teachings of Jesus Christ and the church. Big difference. And we'll talk a little bit about that as we go on because it is actually a uh, freeing up of a lot of things that would had would be required of you if you were Jewish. In other words, I would have to be wearing a yarmulke, a little skull cap, if I'm up here teaching. All right. Uh, there's you know a lot of social things that the Jewish people are required to do if you are a conservative or an ultra-conservative uh, Jew. You have to observe many social things that got nothing to do with honoring Jesus Christ or honoring God. Uh, so it is a law-based uh, faith rather than a faith in Jesus Christ and his teachings that come to us through the church. That's what is referring to here. Um, I lost my place, but that's not unusual. Okay. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles, yet uh, who know that a person is not justified by works of the law, 
but through faith in uh, Jesus Christ. Even uh, we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith uh, in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one uh, will be justified. In other words, works of the law cannot save you. But faith in Christ can save you. But if we, in seeking to be justified, now just, what is justification? Anyone want to give me a definition of what justification is? Huh? No, no, no. Remember, I've done this before. All right? We are born, let's say, here. All right. Zero. Up here is heaven. Down here is you know where. Okay. All right. Justification is considered to being on this road here. In other words, you are on the road to heaven through the, your life, whatever you are doing, your belief system, not only your belief system, but your actions show that that you are headed towards working towards heaven. That is what justification is. It is leading towards sanctification. Okay? It is leading toward sanctification. It is a word that has been very confusing and mixed up and used even in war battles during the early days of the Reformation. People could not understand what justification was all about. And Paul's letters are filled with that. So you have to kind of understand. But the way that I always tell people to think about justification is being on the right road leading to heaven. Does that make it a little bit clearer? Will give you a little more basis for something to think about? Hmm? Well, you're yes, you're aligned with the teachings of Christ. Yeah, you're on the right road. All right. A really important point that Paul makes, and it was one of the major points in the Protestant Reformation. They accused the Catholics of being so interested in saying that works would save us. And we say no. But when we are on the right road to Christ, to heaven, then we must fulfill that through our daily actions, which, of course, is works. But it's not the works itself that will save us. It is the belief in Christ and his teachings. Remember, we cannot be saved if we say, well, I believe in Christ, therefore I don't have to worry about anything else. Well, belief is knowledge, but it is expressed through our works and our daily life. 
surely. Well, yes, but you see, your faith is what drives your works. It shouldn't be the other way around. Faith drives your works. Yes. Okay. But let us go on here. At the end of that area, for through the law, I, Paul, have died to the law. In other words, the law is no more important to me. That I might live for God, I have been crucified with Christ. Yet I live no longer, but I live, but Christ lives in me. Insofar as I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who has loved me and given himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Okay, very important point. If justification comes from observing laws, then what good would the death of Christ be? And so he's making a a very important point here. We are not saved by observing laws, the Mosaic laws or any other laws, not even the laws of, of the church, if we don't have faith behind it. If it is not done out of faith in Christ and for observance of Christ and the uh, purpose of trying to come closer to Christ. If those are not important to us and are not the uh, impetus of our actions, then we are saying that Christ and his life, death, and resurrection have no meaning for us. So we have to do a lot more, and, and I think that the idea of Lent is, is very important for us to really take inventory of what do we believe and why do we believe it and how do we reflect that in our actions and our speech. Let us go on because this remainder of this letter is all on the same subject in different ways. Paul is saying now in chapter 3, Oh, stupid Galatians. Good way to get friends, isn't it? Yeah. Who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? I want to learn only this from you. Did you receive the Spirit from works of the law? That is, did you receive the Holy Spirit ever? Is there any uh, talk about the Spirit ever uh, coming to you in the Old Testament? That's what he's talking about. I want to learn only this from you. Did you receive the Spirit from works of the law? Or from faith in what you heard? Are you so stupid? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now ending with the flesh? 
I remember he's talking about some of those people back at that time period where uh, that council that we had. After beginning with the spirit, are you now ending with the flesh? Did you experience so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does then the one who supplies the spirit to you and works mighty deeds among you, that is Jesus, uh, do you so do (laughs) among you, do so for works of the law or from faith in what you heard? In other words, he's saying exactly what I did a few minutes ago. Do you feel that you are saved through works of the law, observing all of these laws, the dietary laws, etc., etc., or are you saved by the life, death, and resurrection alone? Does then... uh, The one who supplies the Spirit, that is the Father, to you and works mighty deeds among you, do so from works of the law or from faith in what you heard. Thus Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Realize then that it is through those who have faith who are the children of Abraham. Scripture, which saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, foretold the good news to Abraham, saying, Through you shall all the nations be blessed. Consequently, those who have... (laughs) Excuse me. Those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham who had faith. For all who depend on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not persevere in doing all the things written in the book of the law. That is, the Jewish people are cursed if they do not follow all of the teachings that are written in the book of the law. Especially Deuteronomy. And that no one is justified before God by the law. Uh, And that is clear. For the one who is righteous by faith will live. But the law does not depend on faith. Rather, the one who does these things will live by them. Christ ransomed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, First be anyone who hangs on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might be extended to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. So that we might uh, receive the promise of the spirit through faith. So, uh, you know, it's it's difficult. But the purpose here is the whole idea of living by faith in Jesus Christ. And knowing and understanding why you do what you do. And if it doesn't fit the teachings of Jesus Christ, you should not be doing it. But this is what got Paul into hot water with 
the Gentiles because of the way he is now treating the Old Testament and the Jewish law. Can you understand that? You see that? He got in trouble with the, the Jews. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, it's not an easy subject to digest, but I think we can make it clear by the fact that observing rules and regulations and laws for the sake of observing rules and regulations of laws will never get us to heaven. It is faith in Christ supporting or being behind all that we believe and all that we do and say. Now, let me digress a little bit. We know that the church has laws, but that is not in the same way that the laws are in the Old Testament or the Mosaic law. What we have in the church is structure. Because if you don't have structure, your belief system will fall apart. So you have to have certain structures to understand what is what we believe in and why and so forth and so on and what is uh, the fallout from all of that. Uh, but we do not follow those laws simply for the sake of following those laws. We should be doing it for the sake of worshiping Christ. Let me give you something a little easier to understand. Why do we go to church on Sunday? Hmm? What? Out of love of God. Out of love of God, to worship God. If that is not your reason for going to church on Sunday, don't go. What? Because you're not going to get anything out of it. So many, you know, children will say this, young people. Oh, I don't want to go to church on Sunday. I never get anything out of it. Well, with children, you can understand that. Because they haven't had uh, the experience or someone to tell them what Sunday Mass is all about. But adults, if they only go there because it's a sin if you don't, then they've missed the entire point. We go there to worship, to fulfill the commandments of the church and of God. Honor the, you know, remember to keep holy the Sabbath day, the third commandment. We go there to worship God. And if that is not your reason, then you're wasting your time. And in fact, you're making the situation worse. Every, every Sunday when I go to Mass here, there's a gentleman who sits in the back. Uh, he's always there quite early. Sits in the very last, in a chair, not in the pew, but in a chair. In the very back, <laughs> he must sit there for a half hour. You know, and of course, I have no idea what's going on in his mind. He might be worshiping 
God in his way. And I would certainly hope he is. But the appearance that he gives is that he's a million miles away. It's unfortunate. That doesn't mean you have to do any dancing or whatever uh, to make God notice that you're there. But your mind and your heart have to be together in it. And you have to be understanding of what you are doing and why. That's why, why I write that weekly commentary on the readings for Sunday. Are you aware of that? Okay. Um, many people are not aware of it because it's not promoted very much, unfortunately. But in the back of the church you will find, um, I don't have a copy with me today, but a four or five page um, handout that explains the readings of the Mass on Sunday and primarily how the first reading, which is usually from the Old Testament, and the Gospel uh, are connected. And the other readings uh, are complementary to that. So there is a reason, there is a, a uh, theme for the readings of the Sunday Mass. Not during the, the weekday Masses, that's another reason and purpose, but on Sunday Mass there is a theme that runs through all of the readings and all of the prayers. And uh, many people are not aware of that. So about 10 years ago, I started writing this commentary, and it used to be published in the bulletin, but then uh, it was taking up too much time and space, so they decided that the office will be there to uh, publish them all at one time and make them available for the first Sunday in Lent. But this is for all the Sundays of Mass, and we've been doing this here at St. Clair for at least 10 years. It's also available on the internet. That's, oh yes, yes, Dick just reminded me that these commentaries are also on avail available on the internet uh, under the church uh, website. website. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Can you clarify Yes, it's very clear in the latter part of chapter 9, uh, no, chapter 15 of uh, the Acts of the Apostles. They resolved it that the church would not require uh, converts to Christianity to be circumcised um, as the Jewish people were who were not converts to Christianity. All right. And over a period of time, uh, that fell out, and I don't even think Jewish people uh, follow that now. It is a health procedure, but it is not a requirement of any kind, to my knowledge, even in Jewish circles, except perhaps from the, for the Orthodox, the extreme Orthodox, the Hasidic Jews. Yeah. Uh, 
but they sent a letter from the church out to all of the churches telling them that they would not have to do that. Uh, there was a uh, sort of a compensating clause there that they still had to observe from meat strangled from animals uh, and meat served to uh, pagan gods and that kind of thing and unlawful marriage and there seems to me there was one other minor criteria which we still follow. Yeah. Where's the strangled animal? That was a part of the um, the kosher law in killing certain animals. Um, that's another point. Anyways, but yes, you're you're right. The Galatians were not as heavily uh, bound to the Mosaic law as the people in Israel. As I've said before, the further away you got from Israel, the more relaxed uh, the faith of Judaism was. Okay. Is that not human nature? Uh, well, I wouldn't say that, you know, because we're what, 5,000 miles away from Rome. Uh, no. I, I, that, but you, you're right. When the cat's away, the mice will play, so to speak. And uh, yes, when there's, you know, when you had, don't have the high priest watching you every minute, you're going to be a little more relaxed. But that's neither here nor there. All right. Uh, let us go on. I'd like to finish this here in the next few minutes. Are you, the, the gist of the whole, uh, you know, the, the next section is uh, the law did not nullify the promise. All right. The law did not serve the promise either. So you had two you know, two sides of the story there. Uh, what faith has brought us, this is rather important, because faith came, we were held in custody under, before faith came, we were held in custody under the law, confined for the faith that was to be revealed. Consequently, the law was our disciplinarian for Christ that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a disciplinarian. For through faith, you are all children of God in Jesus Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free person. There is not male or female, for you are all one in Christ. And that is where the term no partiality is made. For you are all one in Christ, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Okay. Again, the whole gist of Galatians really gets back to the idea of faith 
versus laws. And we have to understand that, really, because it's important to understand and making our faith not only sincere, but real. Are we really following the teachings of Christ? Are we really showing and through our actions and our speech that we are Christians? I leave you with that uh, because I think it's something that you should think of during the season of Lent. How are my speech and actions reflecting my belief? And with that, let us end in the prayer. Lord, give us the grace and the strength. May your Holy Spirit guide us in trying to understand how I can better serve you and worship you through my actions and through my speech. Give me the strength to know and the courage to follow what you have deigned for me in your plan of salvation and my role in it. Help me to open my mind and my heart to the Holy Spirit and say, come Holy Spirit, convert me to your way of life. For this I pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen.